And it's been um, embarrassing for others uh, to think that New South Wales Parliament in 2017 would vote against giving women the right to choose without a taint of criminality is just astonishing for me. Is it on? Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr Putin. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. No, wait, it, it is on? Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I don't like it. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Is It On? BuzzFeed Australia's political podcast. My name is Alice Workman and joining me from Sydney is Mark Stefano. Mark, post-budget, how are you feeling? I feel good. I feel like I'm coming down uh, a little bit, though, from a, a high. Everyone was in Canberra, was in really good mood. And in Sydney, it's like life went on and no one really was paying attention. Did... What's Canberra like this week? Uh, Canberra has been very quiet. There's been a few Senate inquiries here and there, but it definitely doesn't reach the heights of last week when the human Ken doll came to take selfies with Malcolm Turnbull. (laughs) If people don't know what Alice is talking about, we just published a story this week where apparently there's this guy, American guy, who's had surgery on his face and body 150 times, and he just showed up at Parliament with all his mates and took a bunch of selfies with Malcolm Turnbull. The human Kendall was at Parliament for the budget, and we didn't even know. Yeah. More strangely, he took a selfie <laughs> with um, Stephen Parry, who is the president of the Senate, who I don't think anyone could pick out of a lineup. Uh, so <laughs> I thought that was an interesting choice. I, I bring back the good old days when the real housewives of Melbourne used to come and hang out with Kevin Andrews. That's what I say. That is so bizarre, because when that hit Twitter, was it like three years ago... Everyone was like, why is Gamble Bro from the Real Housewives of Melbourne in at the budget? And she just appeared to be a massive supporter of the Liberal Party. Yeah, huge, huge. Huge. But you watch a lot of Real Housewives of Melbourne. No, not really. No, I've, no. I live with... I li- so my old housemate loved Real Housewives of Melbourne and my new housemate loves Real Housewives of Sydney. So through proxy circles, I have consumed a lot of housewife material, but I've never watched any of the US ones. Okay, well, enough of the Real Housewives of Canberra talk. Let's <laughs> run through this week's Fast Five, the biggest stories in federal politics in Australia this week. You've got the first one, Mark. Budget polling. Did Malcolm get the bump that he wanted? Post-budget bounce is like this myth... In, uh, in Australian politics. But my favourite moment this week was when Malcolm Turnbull, with a dead set straight face, told reporters that in the wake of the News poll and the Ipsos poll and the Reachtel poll and the Essential poll, all showing that there was relatively no movement, he sort of said to reporters, like, polls aren't news. And to say the polls aren't news, like, th- this is the Prime Minister who challenged a sitting Prime Minister by pointing out that the government had lost 30 news polls in a row... So th- he made this polls, fa- news, didn't he? Yeah, he 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 made polls great again. But there's you know there's this fabled BS around whether um, there's a post budget bump. The the most important thing and coming up to the one minute um of the first of the fast five, the most important thing to say is this: is that all the polls moved within the margin of error. So even if there was uh, a tiny movement, it wasn't really statistically significant. That is number one. What's number two this week? Number two was Australia's reaction to what's been happening in the US. So Donald Trump uh, has been exposed this week as has been passing on confidential 
confidential security information he got from the Israelis to the Russians. That information was about ISIS, IS, using laptops as explosive devices on planes. So the US and the UK over the last few months have banned laptops, tablets, portable DVD players and other digital cameras and digital equipment um, in carry-on luggage on flights that come from a few Muslim-majority countries in the Middle East and North Africa. So you can't have them with you, with you in person on the plane. They can't be in the cabin, but they can be in checked luggage. Now, at the time when this happened, a few months ago, when the US and the UK brought their bans in, our Prime Minister said he wasn't going to impose a ban, but now he's saying that he's looking at it very closely. Maybe because, I don't know, Donald Trump passed the information on to Russia, but he didn't pass it on to Australia? <laughs> hmm, maybe that's why. Anyway, the, Ten best, seconds. the best tweet I saw that suddenly started was by Mark Humphreys, and it said, I asked an MP how so many Australian politicians have time to write books. She said they do it on flights. So, yes, I am in favour of a laptop ban. <laughs> okay, number three of the Fast Five this week is a weird story around George Christensen, the backbench MP, and a white supremacist. Let's see if I can get this straight. The Australian version of the American alt-right, you know, those online trolls, mm. it's, called Dingo, it's called Dingo Twitter. Earlier this year, government MP George Christensen goes on their podcast. At the time, I asked George Christensen, I said, why are you going on this podcast? It's legitimizing some pretty disgraceful stuff that they say. He acknowledged that they were, quote, a bit wild and that their humor was mostly aimed at shocking people. Fast forward now to May, and the dingo Twitter people, those people that had Christians on the podcast, said that they were bringing out a white supremacist from the US called Mike Enoch to be their star speaker at the conference that they're calling Dingo Kong. Long story short, George Christensen then, then comes out this week and says, whoa, 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 way too far. He's called on Peter Dutton to refuse the visa. Christensen says he regrets going on the podcast at all, and people have now pointed out that they say a lot of anti-Semitic stuff. And George, I just want to say to you, personally, I told you this in February. Case closed. They should invite Lindy Chamberlain to their dingo conference. <laughs> That's quite funny. <laughs> Number four. The wall is going up. That's right. Construction work on the 2.6-metre steel fence going up around Parliament House has finally started. It was meant to start in summer, but they had an issue with the tendering. So now it is finally starting. I did a walk around Parliament yesterday and watched them crane in some site sheds and concrete bollards over into the ministerial wing of Parliament. Now, you might remember that this was all approved at the end of last year and everyone was on board except for the Greens and Darren Hinch. And it's just part of the $60 million worth of upgrade there's also bollards and fortifications, CCTV cameras, like more than 30 CCTV cameras, and also turnstiles and things at the entrances. Now, the government won't tell us much about this fence, but all we know, it's going to be located one third of the way up the famous sloping lawns. Um, and they, they they said because it is uh, going to be ugly, it's going to be a steel fence, that they're going to cover it in foliage to lessen the impact on the architect's original design of the building because if you haven't seen a picture of Parliament House, and I urge you to Google it, it is a very delightful building. Um, it's Parliament House is built on a hill and there are grass lawns that slope from street level all the way up to a grass roof. And the architects designed it so that um, the idea was that members of the public could walk over the heads of their elected representatives as a symbol of true democracy. But now, Donald Trump style, we're building a wall. Can I just say, I think this is so sad. Like... I'm just going to pause the timer here to say that we're building a wall around Parliament House. There are already bollards around it. It's a beautiful building. It's one of the best parliaments in the world, I'd say. And we're doing the Trumpian thing and we're sort of conceding defeat that we need to erect all these well, massive so, what, structures. Darren Hinch, who's one of the senators against it, he said it's like building a fence around the Opera House. Yeah. The number five is the bank tax. Bank tax, bank tax. So... 
if you remember, probably the most dangerous and spicy manoeuvre in last week's budget was that the Liberal government, a Liberal government, was going to slap a big old tax on the banks that was going to raise them $6 billion. So the banks have been reeling and have been waging a war on multiple fronts. First front, Anna Bly, she's the former Labor Premier of Queensland. She's now the chief spokesperson having of the banking sector, and she's having this massive sook about the unintended consequences of the move. On another front, there's the former Treasury Secretary under Labor, Ken Henry. Now, Ken Henry is like a massive big dog down in Canberra. Every time he speaks, it's front page of the Australian Financial Review and the Australian because he's kind of the guy who got us through the uh, the GFC. He blasted the whole thing as a bad tax, the bank levy. He himself, though, dun, 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 chairman of Westpac. So you've got all these voices kicking up a stinking government. And the thinking is, from the government anyway, that they're onto a winner. Any day, the political coverage is focused on them hitting the banks is a good day. So this isn't over, not I by a I did like shot. the idea when they were talking about um, doing an ad campaign that was similar to what happened when the mining tax was introduced of all these really sad CEOs being like, you don't understand the impact on me. I'm going to lose my million dollar bonus. The ATM's only giving out 50s. It's such a struggle. Yeah. I, and look, I, I think it's a really interesting time in Australian politics because I think people have a weird emotional connection to their banks in some ways. So um, there are people who have been um, obviously hit really badly um, in the last couple of years. But I don't know. I find this whole whole situation very strange because the Liberal government are the ones that are waging war on business. And you've got people like Peter Credlin and Tony Abbott just trying to stay quiet and say this is a bad idea. Forget the culture wars. It's all about the banking mm. wars. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different in this episode. We normally talk about federal politics, but today we thought we'd take a look at what's happening in the States specifically in New South Wales and in Queensland. Last week, a law that would have removed abortion from the New South Wales Crimes Act was voted down by their state parliament. Yep, that's right. In uh, 2017, abortion is still technically a crime in New South Wales. Now, this law would have decriminalised abortion and established safe access zones around hospitals and clinics, but every member of the New South Wales Liberal and national parties voted against it. Now, in February, a similar bill was going to be introduced in Queensland where, yes, abortion is also a crime, but that bill was withdrawn after the, yes, Liberal and National politicians, once again, vowed to vote against it. Here to run us through what the heck is happening in the States is our BuzzFeed colleague, Gina Rushton. Hi. Yay, Gina, on the podcast. (laughs) So, Gina, you've been reporting on this topic for a while now. Why does it elicit such passionate responses from people? Well, I think that it's a lot of it really comes down to um, religion. Um, I think that if you believe that life starts at conception, then... um, you know, it is a matter of life or death for you um, in your belief system. And I think on the other side of it, if you believe it's an issue of bodily autonomy, then it seems quite crazy that women have to navigate, um, I guess, all these barriers to have control over their own um, bodies and make decisions about their infertility. I think the first thing that most people would say when they hear even the intro, if they're around the world or in Australia, is, abortion is illegal in Australia in 2017. Is there a real definable reason that you found in your reporting over the last couple of months, like a simple answer to that question? Um, I don't think it's a politically savvy thing for people to take up. I don't think it's popular 
um, even though most people support um, decriminalising abortion, I don't think it wins you that many um, free votes. I also think that the Labor Party in both states has a pretty Catholic tradition. I think that the LNP has, you know, conservative aspects of the party who would, would really push against that. So what were the two bills in New South Wales and Queensland going? What did, what did they want to do? How were they going to update the law? Um, so the main thing that they were doing um, was removing abortion from the Criminal Code in Queensland and the Crimes Act in New South Wales. And then the second thing they were doing was establishing safe access zones. So that's basically, it was 50 metres in Queensland, 150 metres in New South Wales, but basically an area in which people can't protest or harass women and staff going into these clinics. Um, and then the third thing was about around conscientious objection. So meaning that um, if a doctor conscientiously objected to abortion, um, they had to refer you to someone who didn't. And what do those doctors think? You've spoken to quite a few of them in Queensland, especially in rural areas. Mm. What are the general impressions on the ground? Are they sort of saying, please just get this done? Like, you know, change change the laws because the situation on the ground is actually very different? Yeah, I think that they don't want to operate under the shadow of the law. You know, I've had doctors say to me, you know, we just basically say what we need to say so that this woman fits the criteria for a lawful abortion. You know, the reason why this is such an issue is it's not just a symbolic thing about changing um, legislation. It's that people believe and doctors believe that decriminalisation and access are directly linked. So if you decriminalise it, then the public system will be forced to give access, whereas at the moment they can turn women away from hospitals because private clinics are dealing with it. Accessing an abortion can be really hard in some parts of Australia. If you're a wealthy woman in Sydney or Melbourne, then, um, you know, you, you might not notice those barriers. But if you live out of a city and if you're living in a remote community or disenfranchised in other ways, then it's really hard to access one. Do you have, Has there been any polling about where the public sit? on decriminalising abortion? Because any person you speak who's younger would just sort of suggest, oh, you know, this must be overwhelmingly supported, but mm. that's not so. Um, look, it, there's so many different polls and there's some have been done by anti-abortion lobby groups and some have, some have been done by MPs that are trying to get the legislation through, so it's really hard to tell. Maureen Fruki did some in New South Wales which showed that, you know, upwards of 80% across the state supported decriminalisation and also safe access zones, and it was even higher um, in rural and regional areas. So it was higher than Sydney. So you've got this polling that's like 80% of people mm. are saying, yes, we want to decriminalise, mm. but then in the upper house in New South Wales, where there's a couple of dozen people, most of them are older white men, they're mm. the ones that are making this decision and knocking it back without even without even long debate. It kind of just sort of felt as though it just sort of came up and knocked down. Well, there wasn't really a debate. I mean, in... So you've got the entire LNP party in Queensland deciding the night before the bill's introduced that they're going to vote, that their conscience happened to align across the party and a conscience vote that they're all going to vote the same. They didn't have to vote across party lines. And then in New South Wales, you've got a situation where the entire party voted against it and only one LNP member actually spoke in the debate. Why is there a need of these bills? So... One in three um, women in Australia will have an abortion in her life and I think that most of them know that, you know, access is a huge issue. And also I think that doctors don't want to work within the shadow of the law. I don't think they want to have to lie about this. I think that they kind of would rather give their patients abortion on demand. Thanks for that, Gina. We thought we'd hear from one of the central figures in this debate, Greens MP Maureen Faruqi, on where it goes from here. 
Thank you so much, Ms. Faruqi, for joining us on this special episode of the podcast to talk about what's happened in abortion, the abortion space in Australia in the last six months. What I would love for you to do, first of all, is just explain what occurred in New South Wales early this month. It's lovely to be here, Mark, and thank you so much for having me. I mean, what can I say? You know, it's such a mix of emotions of what occurred in New South Wales um, this month. Some of them probably I shouldn't repeat here, mm-hmm. I have to say. Um, but it's been, you know, utter disbelief for many women and people of New South Wales. It's been disappointment for many others. And it's been um, embarrassing for others uh, to think that New South Wales Parliament in 2017 would vote against giving women the right to choose without a taint of criminality is just astonishing for me. So basically what happened was that a bill to decriminalize abortion in New South Wales and to enact safe access for women going in and out of reproductive health clinics was voted down 14 to 25. And this is in 2017 in Australia's biggest state the upper house of parliament where you probably do get a lot more older politicians and it skews a lot more male. What was it like to be there for that vote and to see that happen, uh, an abortion bill go down in an Australian parliament? Astonishingly, the upper house of New South Wales parliament actually has the lowest percentage of women of any house in Australia at the moment. Hmm. So there are just nine women out of 42 members. So, I mean, for a start, you can see what happened there. Uh, But what happened there also, which is really, really surprising, and I think really talks about how MPs look at democracy in New South Wales, is that most of the politicians who voted against the bill had nothing to say. They just sat there as a block. The government, which actually had a conscience vote on this bill, sat there as a block and voted against it. Only one government member gave some explanation of why they had voted against it. I think that's atrocious. The community has been behind this campaign to decriminalize abortion for years. This particular one behind this bill, which is also the first ever bill that has come to parliament ever in the history of New South Wales parliament, was supported by thousands of people in the community. Hundreds of doctors wrote to the government. You know, more than 100 criminology law experts wrote to the government. This is a change that was supported by the Nurses and Midwives Union. This was a change that was supported by obstetrician gynecologists and their peak bodies, many other unions, Council for Civil Liberties. And the government didn't even have the decency to stand up and say why they didn't support this bill. That's how bad it was. Yeah, and there wasn't just, and from my understanding, is there wasn't just government people who were voting against this. There were Labor politicians in the upper house. So Labor, usually our sort of more left-wing progressive party who were voting against it. What was the rationale of those people? Did they have concerns about what doing this would actually do to access to abortion? So there were basically two people who spoke against the bill, one from the Labour Party Mm. and one from the National Party. Um, And I have to say that both of them did give some explanation of everything was all right at the moment. It's the status quo, right? The status quo is fine. So having, um, you know, women and doctors being criminals for procuring and performing an abortion seems to be all right. And I have to say that there was an element of misogyny that played out that day. This is how I felt. And that was about having control over women's bodies, policing women's bodies. Because even the members, some of the Labour members that supported the bill, 
There were questions like, oh, once this is decriminalized, there will be a vacuum. Like what vacuum are they talking about? I think the vacuum that might exist is the one that would be filled by women making their own choices. If that's the vacuum they were talking about, then that's a good vacuum to have. We know that states like Victoria, Tasmania, ACT have similar laws. And you know, and that's great. And women in New South Wales, the most popular state in Australia, deserve the same rights as women in other states. Well, one of the issues from people who are against the bill is that they would argue that if we took abortion and decriminalised it, it would increase access to abortion. But what you're suggesting is that it was more of symbolic change. Is is the status quo something that um, a, a person in the everyday street would accept, do you think? Well, we found out through the campaign that absolutely not that 73% of people in New South Wales want abortion to be decriminalised, and even a higher number want um, the access zones outside clinics. Access is an issue in New South Wales, and it's an issue because it's in the Crimes Act, especially for rural regional women. There are very few doctors who actually perform abortions. There's not many who do that. And there are very few clinics in rural regional areas. I've been to Albury many times. There's one clinic in Albury that serves hundreds of kilometers of area. And every Thursday... That's across the border from New South Wales. No, it's, oh, it's Albury on the is on side. the New South Wales yep. border, Victoria and yep. New South Wales border. Three Thursdays a month, doctor actually flies in from Melbourne to that clinic. And whenever uh, that clinic is open, there is a gauntlet of so-called protesters standing out there harassing and intimidating patients and doctors to the extent that they were, they were even handing out plastic fetuses um, not very long ago. Now, how is that acceptable to anyone? This is a medical procedure, a very safe medical procedure as such. Um, and this should not be acceptable to anyone in Australia, let alone New South Wales. And it isn't to the people. I think it's the MPs that are completely out of touch with their communities. When we talk about decriminalising it, though, um, you were talking that when women were to get abortions, they were essentially becoming criminals with doctors. There's not many people who have actually been charged under this crime, though, if any. So isn't then then the argument that the status quo is working? The last case that happened in uh, Queensland was in 2010, and the last one that happened in New South Wales was in 2006. But, you know, th that is only one element of why abortion should be decriminalised. Firstly, it's an issue of women's rights to make decisions about their bodies without having any taint of criminality saying that you could be a criminal. I mean, one in three women in Australia do have abortions throughout their lifetime. They are not criminals. Their doctors are not criminals. But the other big issue is really the one about access. And access is limited, it's scarce, it's privatised, and it's expensive because abortion is criminalised. Do you think that if this bill were enacted and approved, we'd have more abortions in this state, though? That is not the evidence anywhere in the world where abortion has been decriminalised. You know, I think some of the suggestions that were being made during the campaign or before the debate on the bill, which came straight out of the playbook of the anti-choice lobby, were things like women would suddenly start having abortions one hour before birth. Mm. I mean, it's highly offensive, firstly, to just to even think and suggest that a woman who has carried the pregnancy to term would actually do that. It's a myth. It's a lie. There is no such thing that ever happens and no doctor would ever do it. 
So no, women make choices about abortion on a number of reasons, for a number of reasons, you know, and they think about it. This is only about having control on women's bodies. And I think really in the 21st century, none of us should stand by and accept this decision of the New South Wales Parliament. I think that a lot of our listeners would be thinking, okay, so Queensland and New South Wales have both decided not to go forward. Where does the campaign shift? Or where does the focus around abortion now um, settle down on? Mark, since the bill, uh, you know, was defeated in the Upper House of New South Wales Parliament, I have had a barrage of emails, of messages that have come to me from the community. People who are actually shocked, people who thought this was really a no-brainer, that New South Wales would enact this law, would repeal, um, you know, the criminal code and, and the provisions in there around abortion. They are completely shocked and they are saying, we are all energized to campaign, to lobby MPs. I do know that there are MPs who have said that they are anti-choice and they may have had some concerns about this bill. I wish that they would have come to me before Hmm. because my door was open for three years, literally. But I think there are conversations to be had, more conversations with them um, to see what their concerns were and how we can bring them on board. Because if you say you're anti-choice, then you have to decriminalize abortion. You have to provide that choice to women. You can't say you're anti-choice and then vote against a bill without providing any reason, uh, a bill that actually provides choice to women. So, you know, I think this was a step that we had to take. Uh, we had bro- we have broken that silence. Each party in New South Wales Parliament had to discuss the issue of abortion within their party rooms. They had to think about it. And I think now is the time to then combine together with those MPs who say that they are pro-choice and move this campaign forward. Thank you so much for appearing on Is It On? Thank you so much, Mr. Faruqi. Thanks so much. It's lovely to be here. I like the woman. I like the woman. Mark, it's now time for Gallery Whispers, (laughs) the segment where we whisper gossip that we've heard around Parliament House this week. Alice, what is your first Gallery Whisper? My first Gallery Whisper is Malcolm Turnbull was asked whether he and his wife Lucy, Netflix and chill this week. And the Prime Minister said, of course we do. Well, as we all predicted, he had no idea what this meant. And one of his staffers had to explain it to him. And the whole thing was very, very awkward. (laughs) Gallery whispers. Gallery whispers. So Malcolm Turnbull now knows what Netflix and chill is. My next gallery whisper is the fact that this week, the Daily Mail body shamed Julie Bishop, the foreign minister, with this headline, is Julie Bishop pushing herself too hard? Foreign Minister 60 shows off her very thin frame, courtesy of a gruelling lifestyle that includes a daily jogging regime and four hours sleep at night. Well, I can exclusively confirm that Julie Bishop's body mass index is within the healthy range. Gallery whispers. Gallery whispers. Mark, I think you need to stop talking about politicians' weight on the podcast. Have I done it before? Many oh, no, times, I have done it before. Many times. Mark, <laughs> it was Bill Shorten's 50th 
nearly falling in a fountain, which was quite funny. He, he had a very odd moment outside Parliament House where Matt Keogh, who's an MP from WA, and Sam Destiari, who's a senator from New South Wales, presented him with the cheapest looking lamington cake I have ever seen. And I asked, and I said, why did you give Bill Shorten a lamington cake for his 50th birthday? And they said, it's because lamington cake is his favourite cake. Gallery whispers. <laughs> what a shit choice of cake, Bill Shorten. Can't just say, I just want to say, I want to break the whisper. I freaking love lamingtons. Yeah, I love lamingtons so much. But if it was your birthday, and you could pick any cake, would you pick a lamington cake? You know, here's my ranking of birthday cakes. Ban- banana cake, cheesecake, and then maybe lamington. It might be in my top three. What's your favourite birthday cake? I don't eat cake. I'm not Marie Antoinette. Um, no You're just anti-cake. I've, I've got one more whisper. Okay, go for it. So, Mark, coming up on the parliamentary calendar is the midwinter ball, which is where all the journos and pollies get together and raise money for charity. Anyway, a few years ago, at one of the midwinter ball tables, um, Richard Di Natale and some green staffers were sitting round with some liberal staffers of ministers. And these minister staffers were, everyone was going round the table and saying their name and saying what they did. And when they got to Richard Di Natale, he said, oh, hi everyone, my name's Richard. And then there was a pause and a liberal staffer to a very prominent minister said, oh, okay, Richard, who do you work for? (laughs) And he said, the people of Victoria, I'm a senator. And everyone went, oh, okay. And apparently there was some confusion as to whether he was a Labor senator or a Green senator. But he cleared it all up with them. And literally, a few months later, he became the leader of the Greens. So, <laughs> what an awkward time. Gallery whispers, gallery whispers. And the reason that I, I thought of that story, Mark, was because I love, my favourite thing in Parliament is watching yeah. politicians do coffee orders and being asked what name the coffee order should be put under. <laughs> and one uh, of my... F- what's your name? Uh, Malcolm. Uh, Malcolm, do you have another name? My favourite example was uh, Andrew Barr, who is the Chief Minister of the ACT. On election day, he went to a polling booth and went to get coffee and he was surrounded by a press pack of about 20 people and he went up to order coffee and the coffee person said, oh, what name is the coffee? And he just, (laughs) he looked, he he leaned back at the media and laughed and then the the coffee person said, no, actually, what name do you want me to put this under? And he said, oh... Andrew, and the, the, it was just the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> the look on their faces when they get so disappointed that people don't know who they are. Politicians. Did I tell you my experience um, of Malcolm Turnbull ordering a double espresso at a deli cafe? Have I told you no. this story? It, we were sitting there down at the fish market and we were doing like a walk around 
And one of the Delhi Cafe small business owners, you know, as part of the package for small business owners was like, Malcolm, we need to give you a coffee. What do you drink? What do you drink? And like Malcolm Turnbull is quite well known in that he's trying to keep the weight down. He drinks a lot of green tea and all that sort of stuff. So he's like, oh, look, I'll have a double espresso. So he gets the double espresso. And I'm sure you know this. I do like double espressos as well. Uh, I, it always comes in those small little coffee takeaway cups, the little tiny ones, tiny, tiny cup, cups. Tiny cup. And Malcolm Turnbull takes it, turns... And with like three cameras on him, just absolutely drops it. Just drops the coffee, bang onto the onto the middle of the of the cafe ground, and like you know the the color of bloody espresso, it just stains the whole ground straight away. And he's like, oh, and he goes to pick it up, and then they like, no, 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 we've got it, we've got it. And so Malcolm Turnbull just sort of like steps over the the spilled espresso and just continues. It was just like one of the funniest <laughs> moments. It's just like. He he had nothing because he's like, oh shit, that's the that's the grab they're gonna use on the TV tonight. It was so funny. Labor MP Anne Ali, who we've had on the podcast in the past, you should go back and check out her interview. Uh, she walked in Australian Fashion Week this week in Sydney. Do you think that the people at Fashion Week would have known who she was? Yeah. Do you know what was so funny is that I asked our photo editor Anna Mendoza to find the photos of Anne Ali. She downloaded them off Getty, and all the captions for Anne Ali were. This model walks down the uh, catwalk for blah, 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 blah. And it was like, there was like four photos of Anna Lee and she was always described as the model or, uh, or model. a model. So I can confirm that at least Getty photographers had absolutely no idea. There you go. All right, we've just got time for a super quick binge before we wrap things up for this episode. Mark, what story did you think didn't get enough attention this week? Well, this is something that flew under the radar of a lot of people, but Channel 7 commissioned some polling uh, from Reachtel in the wake of the budget, and a mate of mine was one of the people who actually got polled down in Melbourne, and they he said to me, he texted mm-hmm. me, he said, they actually asked about Labor Leader, you should check it out. So I did, I did some Googling on the Reach Tolls website, found the results and they're heaps interesting. So while Labor is pretty well ahead in national polling, we've known that for a few polls now, Bill Shorten is not preferred Labor leader. He's not even second, he's third. Alice, can you guess, according Crazy. to this poll, who is, who is Labor's preferred leader? Uh... Well, I know, because he told me. It's Tanya Plibersek. <laughs> yep, 30% of people in the poll said that preferred leader would be Tanya Plibersek, the Sydney MP. 26.2% went there. And Anthony Albanese, who's like the heir apparent in the Labor alternate leader stakes. 26% for Shorten, so just behind Albo. Then 8.5% for both Tony Burke and Chris Barnes. Now, the deputy leader, Tanya Plibersek, is not often in the conversation when we talk about alternate leaders, and it's usually all about Albo for good reason, because Albo was the one that won the rank-and-file vote to be the next leader back in 2013. Yeah, and in the last week, he's come and spoken out twice against Bill Shorten, first about the ad, the white people ad, and now about um, Bill... He didn't think... Uh, Bill Shorten's budget reply was any good. Exactly. So I wanted to bring this to Binjus because I wanted to talk about the fact that we don't talk about women as alternate leaders when they're actually ahead when it comes to preferred leaders. So not just Plibersek for Labour, but Julie Bishop over on the Liberal side because when you actually poll uh, people and you ask them preferred leaders, it's always Malcolm Turnbull 1, Julie Bishop 2, and then people like Abbott and Dutton well, well below. So I've spoken to several people about this poll who say it's not great news for Bill Shorten. Not only is Labor's primary vote not budging, which is important considering Turnbull's slump in the polls is actually not caused by Labor's gaining Labor gaining voters. It's actually caused by Turnbull losing voters to places like One Nation. 
But keep an eye on Plibersek, though, because she could be a future Labor leader. She could actually hop over Anthony Albanese as alternate leader if Bill Shorten were to lose the next election. There could be an appetite within the party to say, look, you know, the Shorten-Albo era is over. Let's move on to, like, a Plibersek, Chris Bowen kind of thing. She's clearly mm. she's clearly got name recognition, and she's very media savvy. She's quite well known um, around the country. So um, I asked my group chat to name... Uh, to name, give us a portmanteau, and they came up with, mate of mine, Ivan, came up with the plibiscendence, and my friend Paul came up with Ooh. the plibiscension. So... What about if it's if it's incorrect, the plibiscyc? <laughs> That's really good. Uh, the way the Labour leadership works, for anyone who doesn't know, is that the leader and the deputy leader have to be different genders, different factions, different states. So that's why you've got Bill Shorten, who's uh, from the right and in Victoria... And you've got a deputy now, Tani Plibersek, from the left in New South Wales. So I think a lot of people, when they think about who they'd like to be deputy and um, and leader, they think, oh, what about Tanya and um, Albo together? That could never happen because they're both from New South Wales and they're both from the left. And so um, around the time of uh, the election last year, when the speculation about Albo taking over from Bill, but then Bill performed very well, so that didn't happen. It was uh, the speculation about who Albo's deputy would be was Kate Ellis because she, um, so Albo is from the left from New South Wales and a man and Kate is a woman and she's from the right mm-hmm. and she's from South Australia. So uh, she's obviously retiring now. So I wonder who uh, they're, they're eyeing off to be the next uh, female deputy if Albo does take the leadership. I mean, it's all speculation at the moment, but that's something to kind of keep in mind uh, when, when, and also obviously the fact that, you know, they have to undertake the, the big vote between the public and, and the, the party room before they decide who takes, who takes the leadership. So, uh, but I mean, they could get rid of those rules if they wanted to. Kevin Rudd set them up so he could never be rolled again, but he's gone. So anything is possible. Anything is possible. Alice, what is your bin juice for the end of our episode this week? Okay, well, my binge juice has got uh, to do with something that happened in the Senate last week on Thursday afternoon. It didn't get much attention because we were all still talking about the budget. I call it a political tale in three acts. Act one, the Greens introduce a bill to fast-track medical cannabis for the terminally ill. It would have reduced waiting time between when you get a prescription from your doctor to when you actually get medicine from literally months to literally hours. The Senate voted. It went 32 to 32. Now, the Senate is different from the reps. A tied vote is automatically a defeated vote. So it got voted down. Greens, Labor and Lionhelm voted in favour. Xenophon, Cory Bernardi, Lucy Cacciucci and One Nation all voted with the Libs and Nats against it. Jackie Lambie wasn't there. Now, medical campaigners are furious because they say this is a red tape decision that would have given people who have months left to live access to medical cannabis to ease their time left on earth and also in most cases let them eat a lot of these people can't physically keep food down and medical cannabis can literally help them live longer by giving them an appetite back and letting them eat anyway act two one nation have been attacked brutally online for voting down this bill why because they have run endless campaigns at the last election in WA and coming up in Queensland about the fact that they have a policy of fast-tracking and legalised medical cannabis. And you might remember uh, a couple of months ago, a state politician defected from the Liberals in Queensland to join One Nation. He's now the leader of One Nation in Queensland. His name is Steve Dixon. And the one reason he gave for why he was joining One Nation was because of their medical cannabis 
platform. So people with sick family members who voted for One Nation about medical cannabis are very, very angry and they're complaining to them online. So what did One Nation do when they got this angry reaction? Well, they decided to attack the Greens and say, oh, this policy could have given unregulated access to clinically unproven treatments, which is not true. So according to the experts, <laughs> uh, but that's not the real reason they voted against the bill. Cut to Act 3, a week later, One Nation is now gloating that they are close to a deal with the health minister to fast-track medical cannabis, a.k.a. the thing they could have voted for last week but didn't, in a move that keeps Big Pharma in the loop and cuts out the Greens. Finn, a political story. That was, that was Shakespearean. Alice, mm. have you ever thought about going into becoming... A screenwriter. <laughs> no. Okay, well, that's all we have time for this week. I want to say a big thank you to our producer, whose Mark is sitting on his lap right now, Nicholas Ray, and also Nicola Harvey, Richard James, Peter Holmes, and the whole pod team. Oh, and of course, Gina for coming on the podcast this week. Thanks, Gina. Thanks, Gina. Um, yeah. We want you guys to get involved and tell us what you think we should be talking about and who we should be talking to. Uh, you can go to buzzfeed.com slash is it on, or you can subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Please leave a rating and review for Mark. He likes to read them. I um, do. Now, the next episode will be coming out next week. We're back in Canberra for Senate estimates. It'll be a corker of a week. Now, my final question, Mark, is it on either in the Labor Party or in the Liberals? I think it's more on in the Labor Party. I think it's a little bit on. I think it's sneaking on, creeping on. I feel like the on is coming on within Labor and it's going to be interesting to watch. It has been that... switched on. Switched on. Oh, the light is maybe on. half on. Yeah, it's all it's it's all happening at the moment. And okay. I think that I don't think people are paying attention, but I think it's all happening. Guys, you've always got to pay attention so that we can tell you when it's on. All right, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.